chapter 11 now, and verse 22. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. <clears throat> now we've talked about the gold ring and the swine's snout. Now we get to the uh, second part of this analogy. The gold ring, uh, one translator says, Moffat translation, a gold ring in the snout of a sow and a pretty woman without sense. NAB, the New American Bible, uses the word with a rebellious disposition rather than just without, he goes to the positive rather than the negative and says with a rebellious disposition. This beautiful woman who has marvelous outer beauty is, it's not an index to her character. That's what you see on the outside <clears throat> is not that which you get because the real person is hidden in the heart. A man may look in the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The man that looks in the outward appearance sooner or later is going to find out what's in the heart if he pursues such a woman. If a beautiful young woman could, uh, uh, when she's prepared to primp, you know, could use this as a mirror, she would recoil in horror because what she would see would not be a pretty picture at all. Without discretion, beauty is as out of place as a gold ring in a, in a hog's snout. Uh, the, just like the ornament in the nose of the, of the hog can't beautify the filthy animal. So a woman who has uh, uh, a heart that is not discerning, a heart that is, that is uh, not discriminating, a heart that is not right with God, uh, it just intensifies the disgust. Uh, somehow or another, when you... When you, you begin to read in the paper about uh, some of these women who act like swine in their moral conduct and uh, then you see a picture of the same woman uh, and she's a beautiful woman it makes you all the more disgusted it seems like such a waste of, of, of such a beautiful creature to be utilized in a manner that is not at all pleasing to God. Now, inner beauty really comes from wisdom. Uh, that's one of the reasons that this proverb comes to pass. If you look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 for just a moment, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, you see in verse 1, who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. You see, when there's wisdom in the heart, there will, it will show on the countenance. And one of the things that people often fail to do, uh, men fail to do, in looking at a woman is they often fail to see her eyes, to look at her eyes. 
A woman who is cheap inwardly will often have a, a beautiful body and uh, have uh, uh, makeup on to attract your eyes to her sensuous lips uh, or uh, to uh, see everything but the, the, the real story in her eyes. Most women, most beautiful women that, that are uh, not what they should be inwardly will have sad eyes. And you can learn to detect that. One of the things that you learn in terms of, of looking at women and trying to look at them without lust is if you concentrate on their eyes, you will, you will not be as distracted by the other parts of their body. And if young men can just learn to look at eyes, you know, it's a, uh, the, the time that a, that a woman's eyes are the most beautiful is during a wedding ceremony. It's something I wish you could all experience. If you ever get a chance to stand up for somebody, try to get in a, in a position where you can see the woman's eyes during the ceremony. And you know, there have been a few times, not very many, because I, I, I think we do a pretty good job of screening the people that we marry, but there have been a few times where if I had more to go on than just my, my discernment looking at the girl's eyes, right smack in the middle of the ceremony, I'd call it off because there's something wrong with the eyes. There's not that glow. Some of the, some of the uh, gals that have gotten married, you know, some of them are much more beautiful than others physically. Uh, the way we measure beauty, at least the way I measure beauty. But I've seen girls that are, that are really not attractive physically come to that wedding altar with eyes that are just gorgeous and makes, her, makes a beautiful bride. People talk about the fact that there's no such thing as a bride that's not beautiful. All brides are beautiful. Well, that's not necessarily true. So every once in a while, you'll get a gal with super sad eyes. And you say to yourself, what's going on inside? There's something wrong here. See? Sad, sad situation when the eyes don't shine. But wisdom makes the face shine or the countenance shine. And a lot, a lot of that shining uh, is in the, the area of the eyes. Uh, so you, you want to have a woman who has beauty. Now in Ecclesiastes 8.1, it's talking about a man, of course, uh, in a generic sense. It could be a man or it could be a woman. The wise person. Uh, who is like the wise person who knows the interpretation of matter? Uh, a person's wisdom illuminates him and causes his stern face to beam. I think it's so important that we learn these things. First Peter chapter 3, you young men, as you think about dating and so on, be very wise. Find a gal who is beautiful inwardly. There's nothing wrong with having a gal that has a certain amount of physical beauty, but not at the sacrifice of wisdom and discretion. First Peter chapter 3 is talking about the, the woman who really fears God in spite of the fact that she may have a husband who doesn't. 
And so it says in the same way, which points us back to the commitment of Jesus Christ, where he, where he really um, allowed the Pharisees and the scribes and the Romans to kill him. He allowed that to happen, committing himself in the hands of the Father. It's very important that you, that you uh, get this principle, otherwise you don't really get the picture that you have in 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 2, it's talking about servants and masters, beginning in verse 18. And it's telling you to patiently endure even the suffering that you receive from an employer. And then it says in verse 21, for you've been called for this purpose. And it gives us a sterling example. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. I ever once in a while hear people say, uh, well, all I'm going to do is I'm going to follow in the steps of Jesus. Well, the only place that Scripture tells us where we're supposed to follow in his steps is or use him as an example. It was much more than an example. He, of course, died for our sins. But when it says that we are to follow him as an example, it is talking about responding properly in the midst of suffering. All right? And so what it says is he's left us an example of following his steps, and then it tells us precisely what we're to follow. He committed no sin. This is when they were killing him, when he was suffering. All right? He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept, and here's the key now, he kept entrusting himself. Paradidomai is a word that means to give over or to gamble, to risk. He risked his life. He risked himself to him who judges righteously. He put himself in the hands of God, okay? And then as a result of that, he, he himself bore our sins on his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That can be thought of as sort of a parenthesis there, just finishing up, sh showing us the benefit of what Jesus Christ did for us. But notice again, verse 23, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jump to verse 1 of chapter 3. In the same way, you wives. All right? And then later on, down in verse 6, or verse 7, you husbands likewise, or in the same way, you husbands. Now, the idea is that the backdrop of the whole thing is the suffering of Jesus Christ. So it tells a woman, here's the woman, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now watch what it says about that behavior. As they observe your chaste the word is hagnos, pure, holy. Holy, the word is translated sanctified. It's translated saint, the same root. All right. If they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, the attitude the woman has toward the husband, and then here's the key in relationship to what we're uh, talking about here, let not your adornment be merely external. Notice, 
It doesn't say that she can't look nice on the outside, that she ought to be an ugly old hag. It doesn't say that. But where's the emphasis? Let not the adorning be merely external. The braiding the hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, the external things. But rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now that word gentle is the word P-R-A-U-T, prates. Prates is often misunderstood. It's translated a lot of different ways. Usually it's translated more concerning the result of prates than it is the actual meaning of the word. Prates is actually more an attitude toward God than it is toward men. It's translated meekness. And we kind of get the idea meekness is this kind of we talk about a, a little uh, uh, mousy man, you know, as being very meek. That's not what it means. Uh, the, 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 someone has suggested the prates means strength under control, which is a fairly good idea. But there's more to it than that, because what it is is this. It's an inwrought grace of the soul, whereby when something happens to you, you respond just like Christ did in the second chapter. You don't revile again. You don't talk back. But you commit yourself to God. You look at God and you say, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand why I'm suffering. But I, I believe that you know what's going on. I believe that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. I accept this without resistance, without disputing. I accept it as, as from your hand. I say thank you, and I rest in you. That's protest. You see, it takes a lot of, of, of spiritual gumption for a woman who has a husband who is mistreating her in some way or who is, uh, has rejected her faith or has rejected her as a person. It's pretty tough for a woman to just back off and love her husband and submit to him and rest in God and not talk back. But that's precisely what she's told to do here. And you know, there are no women here, so I shouldn't dwell too much on the woman's responsibility here. What I should say is that you as men have a responsibility to, to give your wife the, the freedom to be herself. The freedom to grow and the freedom to, 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 to learn. And you shouldn't be the kind of husband that's being talked about here because verse 7 tells you you're supposed to live with her in an understanding way. You're to, you're to treat her as the weaker vessel and you're to care for her very tenderly. And, and so your wife should never have to go to uh, this means of winning your heart. But at the same time, the inner beauty of that woman comes from that kind of a spirit. And you know that if, the, if, you're, if you're what you ought to be, and you have a great relationship with your wife, 
and there's that give and take that God intends, she still should show a meek and quiet spirit toward others because someone else is going to be pushing her from another angle. So it's not as though she shouldn't have this spirit, but you should, you should not uh, force her to, uh, to be that way because of the way you are. You ought, to let her, uh, you ought to let her grow in other ways because you're the right kind of a husband, all right? But nevertheless, this is a part of that inner beauty. When a woman, a woman that has true inner beauty is a woman who is committed to trusting God no matter what the circumstances of her life. That's a beautiful thing in a woman. And then... It, it also uses the word the quiet spirit, not only a meek, but a quiet spirit. The, uh, the idea of that particular word quiet is a quality that comes from within a person which causes no disruption on the outside. There's something within that takes place, a quietness, a peace, a rest, that comes from the inside so that on the outside there is no disturbance. There's another Greek word that speaks of the quietness on the outside which will affect the inner. But this is the quietness on the inner. It's like the eye of a hurricane. You know, all around is turmoil, but right in the center there's calm. And here's this woman who, even though everything is in turmoil around her, on the outside... She has an inner quality that gives her peace even when everybody else is tearing their hair out. That's a marvelous quality. It's a quiet spirit. And it says, which is precious in the sight of God. Then it goes on and says, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. The attitude one has toward a husband uh, has a lot to do with that inner beauty. So it's, there, there is an inner beauty that a person can have. And beauty allied to virtue is incomparably lovely. When you have a woman who is beautiful on the outside, beautiful on the inside, it's a marvelous combination. But when a beautiful, that same beautiful woman is bereft of discretion, it is ugly. And really, something that that uh, we wouldn't want to to have to contend with. What a contrast this this hog is to chapter eleven, verse sixteen, when it says, "A gracious woman attains honor, and violent men attain riches." She's put in the category of a violent man. Uh, 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 that actually in opposition to the violent man. The gracious woman attains honor. A violent man, remember, a man who, who uh, does what he can to plunder and rob, he attains riches, but after he, he's got all the riches in the world, he wants one more thing. The one thing that he wants that he can never attain is honor. And here's a woman who may not be rich, but she has honor. And uh, it's because of her gracious, gracious spirit. Remember Abigail in 1 Samuel 25, verse 33. Her beauty really was a result of her discretion. She was a woman with tremendous discretion. And uh, uh, there, she was loved for it. Uh, let's see, 1 Samuel 
25, verse 33 says, David speaking to Abigail, Blessed be, this is verse 32, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. Blessed be your discernment. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. There's a, remember Abigail was was hooked up with Nabal, who was a fool, and uh, yet uh, she spared David by her own discernment. She was a beautiful woman. Uh, Lord Lighton, uh, a writer aligned with the Puritans of a couple of centuries ago, said this, lightness and fantastic elegance in apparel is the very bush or, sh or sign hanging out that tells a vain mind lodges within. That is, when a woman has to overdress and over make herself up, uh, Lord Lighton is saying that uh, there, there is, uh, it's like a, putting a sign out in front of her uh, showing that there's a, there's a vain mind lodging within. You might say that she hangs out a, a vacancy sign. Uh, the, uh, I said that, not Lord Lighton. I just want you to... <laughs> I think Lord Lighton's trying to be a little more serious here. The soul fallen from God hath lost its true worth and beauty. And therefore it basely descends to these mean things to serve and dress the body and take share with it of its unworthy borrowed ornaments while it hath lost and forgotten God and seeks not after him, knows not that he alone is the beauty and ornament of the soul and his spirit and the grace of it, his rich attire. I think you can understand what he's trying to say to us, that there is, a, there is an artificial beauty that so many women put on. I'm not against makeup, by the way. I always say that if... The barn needs painting, paint it. And uh, I think there's nothing wrong with a, with a gal having a little makeup. But you know, there, it, it can be carried to a ridiculous extreme. And it's amazing how, how the, uh, the, the, the women will make themselves up in such a way that, that they will begin to look cheap. And they can go to great expense to look cheap. Isn't that amazing? That's a strange, strange sort of thing because so often, so often it, there is, a, there is a, uh, uh, an inner ugliness that comes as a result. Um, you know, the, there are several categories of women who are very, very difficult to work with in terms of the whole the whole scene of, of um, submission to authority and this kind of thing. And one of them, one of the categories, I won't go into all of the background in detail, one of the categories is that women that are beauty operators, women involved in, in manicure and, and in, in hairstyling and this kind of thing, often are very inwardly rebellious. I mean all of them. So don't go jumping to conclusions if you happen to know a fine Christian hairdresser that she's been deceiving you all this time. Uh, 
that's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that this is a general rule of thumb, all right? That there is a deep rebellion. And the, the, when you see hair styling, when you see uh, the, the kinds of styles uh, that are often perpetrated on women as being the style, there is, there is al almost always a tendency toward a mannish look. It's an amazing combination. They want them to look masculine and then to make up for the masculine hairstyle, they paint them all up uh, in some atrocious manner in order, to, in order to make them then look feminine so that they can be both masculine and feminine. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing art, really. But if you, if you get, if you have to deal with the women who are involved in the business, you begin to realize that there is something about that kind of business that gives women a, an ability to manipulate and an ability to, to, to uh, help the women's liberation movement or whatever. And there's often a rebellious spirit. And it's a, it's a sad thing, but it, it demonstrates, I think we should just understand this, it demonstrates really the, the, the curse that is upon mankind. I'll explain what I mean. In the book of Genesis, chapter 3, after the fall, said that the man would work by the sweat of his brow to support his family. And then secondly, it said to the woman, two things would be true of the woman. Number one, she would she would have trouble in childbearing, that is, pain in childbearing. Her travail would be long and difficult, all right? But the second thing is the little phrase has been greatly misunderstood, and it simply is, her desire shall be unto her husband. Now, for many, many years, theologians, just without really exegeting the text, uh, just assumed that what that, that little phrase meant in Genesis 3 was that a woman had an insatiable desire for a sexual relationship with her husband. And that's been, the, that's been a common interpretation. You look at most older commentaries, you will find that that is the common interpretation. How do you interpret Scripture? You interpret Scripture as Scripture. And uh, the, the thing that the commentators ignored is in the very next chapter you have the same phrase. And it says... To Cain, sin has desired to control you. The same phrase in the Hebrew, the English though transla translates, sin, desire, sin is crouching at your door and desires to control you. Right? Now if you go back to Genesis 3 and look at that text, you'll discover, not only is it the same phrase, but it then has a contrast. Listen to it this way. When it says, your desire shall be unto your husband, it says, you will have a desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. See, that was the first, first response of the women's liberation movement. That's when it started. That's when women started wanting to control their husbands wanting to have the upper hand, wanting to be the boss, wanting to wear the pants in the family, was at the fall. I didn't originate when uh, Betty Friedman 
started the na National Organization of Women, started in the Garden of Eden, just before they were kicked out of there because of sin. Happened as a result of the fall. Because women have a desire naturally to control their husbands. You shouldn't be surprised at what we're seeing in terms of the women's liberation movement. Because you see, women naturally are that way. Well, the thing is, though, that the Christian woman is not to be natural. She's to be supernatural. And therefore, it's her responsibility to have this meek and quiet spirit and to have real discernment. Now, all of that said, let me say a word about this word discretion. The word is the word sewer. Sewer means to withdraw. It means to turn aside. It means to abandon. The, uh, the this, excuse me, this is the word without, without. It means to abandon. It means, the, the uh, Septuagint used the word uh, for, for, uh, for the idea of being void. So it's speaking of being void of discretion, ta'am, to withdraw from ta'am. Now, what does ta'am mean? It comes from a root word that is similar in form, te'am, which means to taste. It's perception through the senses. Sometimes used for perception or judgment or understanding, but the, the root idea never escapes the word. Underneath all of it, the, the, the idea of good taste is always there because the word means to taste. And therefore, it's speaking of discernment in the way that we think of discernment, that is being able to discern between good and bad and so on. But it's not just a discernment. The word be in is the word that is used for determining between, discerning between two things. That's an entirely different word. This word has the idea of being able to discern in the sense of, of taste. The word is, is used often uh, of food. That is, tasting the flavor of food. It's used with the idea of just normal eating. It's also used it, uh, as to tasting in the sense of ascertaining the flavor of something. That is, uh, tasting something to see what it's like. Thereby, it becomes evaluation or decision in reference to food. It's used in this way in Job uh, to give the sense of tasting, uh, of the testing and tasting of God's Word. In Job chapter 12, verse 11, and chapter 34, verse 3. It's used the same way in 2 Samuel 19.35. And... Uh, the idea of taste is definitely involved, even though it's not talking specifically about food. It's the idea of taste, tasting it to see uh, if it's good or bad. Second Samuel 1935. Uh, this is Barzelli, uh, one of the great Italian prophets here. Uh, I am along with Malachi. You know Malachi and Barzelli. All right. I am now, it says in verse 35, I am now 80 years old. Can I distinguish 
between good or bad? Can or can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Or can I hear any more the voice of singing men and women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? The king had called for Barzelli, and uh, he was a Gileadite, and the king had sent for him, and he said, "Why would he send for me? I'm so old, you know. I I can't even I can't even taste my food anymore." So this is the idea of how the word is used, uh, and and yet the it's it's always uh, always. Uh, in the end, means some kind of evaluation. Came to mean the idea of valuation and decision on moral matters and this sort of thing. For instance, in Psalm 34, Psalm 34, this verse, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Discern. Try Him. You'll like Him. Much more than that. Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman chapter, and verse 18, it says, she senses, and again it's the word ta'am, she senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She has good taste, if you please. First Samuel chapter 21. First Samuel chapter 21. And verse 13. So he disguised his sanity before them. Go back to verse 12. David took these words to heart. That is, he took the advice, I think the King James says, and the word advice is the taste, the, the good taste. In this case, he took the advice and uh, feigned uh, uh, insanity uh, so that he could escape from his enemies. So it's, it's the idea of taste, the idea of, of uh, discernment, the idea of evaluation. You take a beautiful woman and you withdraw that kind of taste, that kind of discernment from her, and you have a waste of her value. Just like when you have a gold ring, the waste of a gold ring, and the snout of an animal who could hardly appreciate it. The idea is taste carried over into the intellectual region, the capacity for forming a judgment, particularly in the area of what is right or wrong. Lacking discernment. Now, the ASB and the RSB both translate it, the, the same word, behavior, in 1 Samuel 21.13. And the superscription of Psalm 34, where it's talking about David, again, when he changed his behavior. Uh, let's see what the NASB has here. Psalm 34, it says, A psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and departed. Now that, of course, do you, you understand that when you have a superscription on a psalm, not the uh, titles given by the uh, publisher of the Bible, but the 
the superscription like that, in the Hebrew text, that's the first verse. In fact, it's very confusing sometimes. If you're using an older, an older uh, commentary or an older work, it'll always have the, all of the Psalms with the superscriptions will have, uh, uh, will be one verse off. Because uh, the first verse is, is this, a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Second verse is, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So sometimes as you find a discrepancy, that's the reason. A lot of people are confused by that. But this is a, a, part, of the original, a part of the original text, okay? And it tells us the historical background uh, that is involved here. Now, in the New American Standard, it, it does, not, does not translate it so that you can find the word ta'am easily, but the, in the King James, it says, when David changed his behavior before, and here it says he feigned madness, which is a good interpretation of it, but uh, in any event, the word, the word for taste is in that text. It is the, the, the word behavior. The ASV translates it reason in Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26, same word, but in uh, 26.16, it says this. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. But the, a, uh, the ASV, the American Standard Version, uses the word reason and uh, translates it that way. And then understanding in Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12. And verse 20. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment. And New American Standard translates it discernment. Uh, as I say, the ASV translates it understanding. Takes away the discernment of the elders. So that's a little bit about the word for discretion. Let me give you just another four little things about this. Number one, Ta'am comes only from God's commandments. How do we get discretion? Well, Psalm 119.66. Psalm 119.66. Here it's the psalm of the word of God. It says, teach me, telling the, the word you want to be taught, teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in thy commandments. The real place that we'll get this, a real discretion is through the Word of God. Incidentally, look with me for a moment at Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. Beginning of verse 11, concerning him we have much to say. This was an interruption in the book of Hebrews. Concerning him, Melchizedek, we have much to say. It's hard to explain. Since you've become dull of hearing, the word nothros means slow, sluggish. 
For though by this time, that is, considering the chronological time that you've been Christians, you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the ABCs, the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. You're immature, right? For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. I tell you, if you don't like um, Bible study that gets into depth and really studies out the, the truth of God's Word, don't admit it. Okay? I mean, sit there and look interested even if you're bored to death because if you admit it, you're admitting that you're a baby, that you're not accustomed to the Word of Righteousness for you're a babe. You want milk rather than meat. But now notice in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, the teleon, the one who has grown up, the one who is an adult. Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern with moral perception good and evil. See, if you want... If you want your wife to not only be beautiful physically, but to have the inner beauty, to have the discernment, to have ta'am, then you will make sure that she is exposed to God's Word so that she can grow as a Christian, so that she can, so she can mature. So, and then that she not only has an opportunity to hear the Word, but has an opportunity to have her senses... Uh, uh, her senses actually exercise and use what she what she learns. It's one of the things that you discover. It's so important, fellas, to allow your wives to to expand and to grow. I think a lot of times men are afraid their wives are going to outgrow them. Well, shame on you. They shouldn't be able to do that. You should be able to keep up with them. But at the same time, let them, let them, Grow, let them mature, because they can be very productive and they'll have that inner beauty. So ta'am only comes from God's commandments, from God's word, from exposure to that word. Secondly, it is in the sovereign control of God. It's in the sovereign control of God. I didn't put a verse down there. I, was, I had a couple in mind, but I didn't uh, put them down. But there's several places in the Psalms where it's talking about God giving as God the giver, God giving discernment. There's the, the direct connection, even with the verse that we gave you in Psalm 119.66. Here's the psalmist praying to, to God for this discernment in relationship to the Word. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And discernment of all kinds and understanding all comes from a fear of the Lord, doesn't it? And so as a result, it's in the sovereign control of God. And therefore, God just doesn't give that kind of discernment to a person, to any person, but only to those that are hearing his word. Number three is this. A woman with ta'am is praised. Again, 1 Samuel 25, 33 the story of Abigail, she's praised. 
When a woman has discernment, and of course Proverbs 31 is another place where the woman was praised. A woman with discernment. She will be praised. Her husband will rise up and call her blessed, and her children also. But, number four, is the conclusion. A woman without discernment is like what? A pig with a gold ring in his snout. That's really not very complimentary. But it's a good description. It really tells us what God's viewpoint is of, of a woman who does not have discretion. Well, turn to the next verse. Verse 23. Let me read it. And then we, we want to read the verses following because... Strangely enough, in the midst of these individual Proverbs, we now come to, a, to a, a, a section that begins with a, with a proverb concerning the desire of the righteous and the expectation of the wicked, and then moves into a whole, a whole section on very practical financial principles. All right? The next several weeks, we'll be talking about these financial principles and be giving you some other material in relationship to that that I think will be helpful. But let's just look at it. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. Now that's sort of the key title verse. Then it moves in, in this direction. There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, but it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. He who diligently seeks good seeks favor, but he who searches after evil, it will come to him. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who wins, who, he who is wise wins souls. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. Now all of that has tucked away in each verse not only some other things, but has these, these financial principles. In verse 23, it's the idea of desire and fulfillment. The principle is we often get what we set our hearts on, but not in the way we expect. We don't always get it the way we expect it. The form that it takes is not necessarily what we would like. For instance, the people of Israel said, we want meat. We want meat. We want meat now. We don't want to wait. And we're going to pout until we get it. And uh, they insisted upon it. The Psalm 107 says, God granted their request, but sent leanness to their soul. They got meat. They got meat until they vomited. They got sick. 
Here they were, a people living on manna in the wilderness, which was a perfect food. It's my opinion, for what it's worth, and nobody says this, but they're just hints, but it's my opinion that the manna was a, a very special food from God that required no, uh, no, no, none or very little elimination, right? I have to mess with the, the raw sewage of three million people in the wilderness. Start thinking about that for a moment. Very little water and the raw sewage of three million people. Do you ever, you ever think about, I mean, I don't know how many people sit around <laughs> thinking about that, but, all right? <laughs> now, suppose that the food that they got, just think this through for a moment, suppose the food, the manna that they got was in some way kept the system healthy and all of that, miraculous food, it was a miraculous food, good night, it was there every morning, they go out and gather it, they go out on Saturday morning, it's not there every week. You know, double portion uh, taken on Friday, and then on Saturday morning, there's nothing. So, I mean, that's in itself a miracle. You know, miracles are, are sometimes miracles of timing, sometimes they're miracle, miracles of substance. This was both. But nevertheless, they eat this food, and it's fixed many ways. They can make it into cakes. They can eat it fried or whatever they want. There are a lot of ways of eating it, and they eat this, and there's no problem with elimination okay that's supposition but think about it all of the sudden all of the sudden they get all these quail and they eat them now I'll tell you something first of all your system's going to react but secondly remember they said a pestilence a plague struck the people afterward okay and here you got all of the sudden in a camp of three million people who don't have any kind of a sewer system and no water, all of the sudden, three million people have a problem, okay? And they got sick, and they got sick, and then the pestilence came, and they, and they started dying like flies, see? And they got what they wanted, but it wasn't exactly in the form they expected. See, they wanted God. Most people that deal with God, they'll say, God, this is what I want. God says, no, you don't. Yes, God, this is what I want. No, you don't. Yes, God, this is what I want. And God says, okay, I'll give it to you. And you get it, and they say, but God, I expected you to intervene for the bad part of it. I mean, I wanted that, but I want you too. I mean, I want you as sort of a, a backup plan so that if this doesn't work out, you'll be there to rescue me. God grants their request, but sends leanness to their soul. You've got to be careful of what you desire. In fact, you've got to be careful for what you pray, because God sometimes will answer your prayer, but not fulfill your desire. Sometimes he will answer your desire and not answer your prayer. Paul had a desire to be rid of his thorn in the flesh. Why did he want to be rid of his thorn in the flesh? Because he wanted to be more effective. Correct? Alright? So he says to God, God, take away the thorn in the flesh so I can be more effective. God says you're more effective with the thorn in the flesh. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for when I'm weak, I'm strong. And so what God did was he granted his desire, but he didn't grant his request. 
Sometimes God grants both the request and the desire. And there are times where God says no. And he grants neither. Usually for our good. But the fact is that you had better be careful how you pray. Sometimes people will pray, Lord, uh, if such and such would only happen, I would do anything. Really mean that? God may take you up on it. He may take the everything in the process. But I didn't really mean it literally. Be careful. God takes your prayers seriously. And these people prayed for food and God gave them food. But they didn't really want the food. What they wanted was their, for their soul to be satisfied. It was not satisfied. And many of them died. But you have to be careful to desire. Now, the, the verse 23 then starts in with the desire of the righteous. And the righteous desire comes out only good. But the expectation, the longing, the hope of the wicked is wrath. You say, what, what person, what person desires wrath? Well, when you desire something, there's an old French proverb that says, when you desire something, you must also desire what it will bring. And so if a person desires something that's wrong, it's going to bring wrath. And so the ultimate long-range expectation is really wrath. You can expect it. When you desire wrong things, the judgment of God will be upon you. Now we'll talk about that next week and get into those financial principles. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for our wives and for the fact that so many of them are beautiful inwardly and outwardly. Thank you for that special gift. Oh, Lord, we pray for, for some of these women, women who, who are, have cheapened themselves in these days. Oh, Father, how our heart goes out to them. Their beauty is like a gold ring, but it's in a swine snout. Father, we pray that you will give to us as a people the ability to reach out to those that are in need so that they won't have to have cheap substitutes. They can really show forth the beauty that you have given them. Meanwhile, Lord, give us a discerning eye too as men. And we pray that your word will abide in our hearts. Bless us at work, at school, wherever we may be. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.